Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, is it a cell phone ban or regulations and common sense? The Prime Minister is getting ready to meet with all the other political leaders. Will there be fireworks? And a century-old shipwreck, a barge, that one on the Niagara River has moved. Will it go over? We'll find out on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, the cell phone ban. I'm not really sure it should be a cell phone ban because really cell phones are still there. It's just you can only use them for educational purposes or health or safety reasons. Uh, so they're still there, and the technology is still being used. Uh, but it, it appears that uh, teachers have a little bit more of a guideline to follow, and everyone's got rules uh, now in front of them that uh, keep everybody on the same page. To talk more about all of this, uh, Stephen Shaw is with us, Ph.D. and Interim Graduate Program Director, School and Applied Child Psychology, Department of Educational and Counseling Psychology, McGill University, and on the line now. Uh, Dr. Stephen Shaw, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Stephen, your thoughts on this? Uh, many have said that uh, there wasn't really sort of any set of, set of guidelines, uh, and in some scenarios, I guess it would get out of hand. Does this lay things out and, and, and tell everybody what the guidelines are? Your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, I think, I think it's really helpful. You don't, as society, have very good rules on cell phone. If you go to a restaurant, you'll see people on date, yet still on their phone. I know. <laughs> so I just think it, it makes a lot of sense, especially with the appropriate exceptions, because it is a valuable medical tool for kids who need that. Yeah. It's a valuable educational tool. So, yeah, I think this is, this is not a bad idea. And, you know, it was funny because we all talked about this, and, and all, I've got two kids that are in school, uh, one in grade 12, one in grade 7, and this is obviously a, a prominent discussion around the house. And and even they admitted that, yeah, it gets a little out of hand at times, or it has gotten a little out of hand at times. Yet it was interesting that once this was announced, and I'm not sure if there's politics here involved, some said, well, we really don't need it. We've got it under control already. Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I... I think that uh, any new technology, there's always going to be some problems. I mean, education has this history forever. We had people complain about the pencil. You know, it was replacing chalk and slate. I remember when calculators were a big deal, whether you were allowed to have your calculator in math class or not. That's right. But this is an issue where it uh, can be disruptive if there's not a really good system in place to uh, use and lean into technology. So... I think it probably does help a little bit. It gives teachers some cover and some guidelines. And uh, do you think the response uh, is, I think the response is a bit more positive than everyone thought. I don't think there's too many people disagreeing with this at this point. That's right. At first, I was a little hesitant that it was a Ministry of Education mandate from the province. Uh, I thought it was more better off to be done at the local teacher level. However, the exceptions for medical issues, for emergencies, and for educational use to me, that's, those are the big issues. And after that, there's not a real good purpose. So it makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, we also have to remember that sooner or later, like the, the whole idea behind edu- the education system is to prepare those for later in life. And, and I've often said this to my, to my kids, you know, if all of a sudden I'm in some sort of meeting or whatever at work and, and, and you start doing something that's not related to work, you're going to have to answer for that. Oh, yeah. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's simply disruptive and takes away from the purpose of the class. 
I think cell phones are so common and everybody uses them. So I would like to see teachers lean into it a little bit and use cell phones in their class lessons a little bit more so it's more relevant. But other than that, it's a bit of a distraction. So I think this is probably a positive step. Talk a little bit about how this technology can be used and how we can use this to actually keep the student interested. That's right. Remember, if you have Internet access, we have access to the largest library in the world. Every single book, every single uh, piece of literature and criticism is available. And just at a just right at someone's fingertips. It's more than cat videos and social media. So uh, by pointing that to children and to having even a Wi-Fi with access to certain uh, websites and others blocked, it could be a valuable tool simply as a library. Not to mention interactive tools. Lessons can be taught on them. Uh, they can be far more interactive than a classroom. So it really has a lot of potential. Um, I think schools have been a little bit slow to really implement this idea, though. Uh, over and above, as you mentioned, the vast knowledge that's at one's fingertips, what about it just using the device as another way to keep them engaged because it's something they relate to? So if you can teach them to learn on something or with a device or with a technology that they're already familiar with, how does that help just learning in general? Yeah, it really can be positive. Not to mention that there are skills that schools are really starting to teach anyway, and the cell phones are great. For example, social and emotional learning, teaching kids how to get along and develop social skills. This can be done online through chats and through group discussions that way. Or team problem solving, which is becoming a bigger issue in schools, and that's what we teach anyway. But doing this through, through collective uh, online work really can be very effective because like you say this is the phones are something they're going to use anyway so it teaches skills and and objectives that are already in ministry of education guidelines so why not use a mechanism that they're already going to use i, I think it's a real uh, real positive thing it does take a little bit of work and a little bit of change of ideas from the point of a teacher or point of curriculum development however it really can get the objectives that are already in place and teach them in a in a way that uh that are more relevant to, this, to the students today. Uh, many commented when this was first announced way back when that it would be hard to enforce. And, and, and it was funny. I couldn't believe some had a very defeatist attitude about the whole thing. Like, good luck with that. Uh, whereas I, I found, as a parent, uh, uh, the, the device is actually a great disciplinary tool in many ways as soon as you threaten to take it away. Uh, do you think this will be hard to enforce? I don't think it will be. I think it, it can be difficult to enforce as long as there's a mindful system in place. Yeah. That, uh, every student having a, you know, a pocket that they put the, class, the phone in the pocket at the beginning of the class or keep them in their locker, which a school in Montreal has done. Um, it can be done. But I think there has to be a system in place. But I, I'm with you. I think it can be done. Just a little bit of thought uh, rather than a kind of an ad hoc response to somebody with a phone and cracking down with a harsh punishment doesn't seem yeah. to be effective. But there's, there's ways. It can be done. Uh, it, it, also, it almost seems that some have given up, that we can't, we can't put this genie back in the bottle. And, and, and again, I don't think anybody's really trying to do that other than perhaps just control it. Is that maybe a sign of one's own laziness and perhaps we don't want to be mindful of how we're using the device? How important are the parents in this discussion? 
Well, I think the parents are very important, and, and uh, to some degree, for you know, as, as a parent myself, I think you sometimes look to schools when we have new ideas. So, how do we manage the cell phones? A lot of parents aren't particularly good at it anyway. They, it, there's phone activity at the dinner table and and such. So maybe the schools can be a, a really nice guideline and help give parents some tools and opportunities to control their own children's cell phone use. So I, I agree, but I think this is actually not a bad step. I was a little little hesitant at first to, to think about this ban, but now I think it really could help out. It could teach some rules and some discipline about the appropriate time, purpose, and place to use a cell phone. And that may be helpful in starting conversations around the dinner table. Uh, interesting because that's one rule that we have in our house is no cell phones at the dinner table. And I, like you, remember sitting at a restaurant many years ago. I, I bet you it was over 10 years ago now. And a group of people sitting around a restaurant table, a family, and nobody was talking. Everybody was on their device. And 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 so we've sort of made this rule as the kids got older and, and started using devices and stuff that at the dinner table, that's it. No devices. Everything's down. And I actually found, because I've had parents call and, and say, you know, we can't discipline our kids anymore. We can't. Well, you don't. You mean physically hit them? You don't have to spank kids anymore. You can still discipline them, though. And I found the device was a great disciplinary tool. Hey, you're not getting along? Give me the device. And the longer you're not behaving, the longer I keep the device. It's almost like cutting off their supply of oxygen. It works incredibly well. So I think the balance is there to be found. I do, too. It's like you say, that's that's almost like virtual grounding somebody. <laughs> virtual them. grounding. I love it. That's ex- <laughs> that's perfect. So that's that's a very reasonable thing to do. But but I think just teaching when the limitations, this is something that is appropriate, has a lot of valuable uses. But when, where, how, maybe schools can provide some guides to the rest of us on that. And I really don't think that's a problem at all. Is there a lesson to be learned here some way? And again, this is a huge generational thing. uh, And boy, I bet it will continue to be a generational thing for for the next couple of decades. But what about actually getting us or the kids to speak face to face? Are they losing that? Are we finding the balance there? Are we encouraging uh, 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 discussion face to face as opposed to with devices? Well, one thing, devices helps helps promote that, uh, the face-to-face discussion. Yeah, good point with FaceTime and such. Exactly. With FaceTime, with Zoom and all the other types of meetings, it's really wonderful for me to, just just as a, as a professional, to have face-to-face meetings with colleagues all over the world. And that's something I could never do before. I would have to travel, and it's very expensive, to meet somebody. Now I can talk to them face-to-face, have conversations. My colleagues in Brazil or in Poland or in Hong Kong, and, and it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to expand the world and get new experiences, not just talking to your friends or talking to a teacher, but really expand the variety of people you can actually talk to face-to-face and see them. So it's, it's really, it, it really expands that opportunity. How difficult is it for educators to keep up? I mean, especially just being a parent, it's tough to keep up with their technology uh, because it seems that, you know, uh, with a whole generation gap, the older have knowledge and such. But, boy, uh, this has certainly turned the tables. It really has. And it's not simply just saying cell phones. There's new software, new methods of communication all of the time. And it's, it's, I mean, as my children get older, I don't know what I'm going to do when they move out because they're the ones who introduce me to new New, new software and That's new ideas. Right. They're going to have to come home for a service call. 
<laughs> I really Yes, that's right. That's exactly true. Uh, Dr. Stephen Shaw has been with us, Interim Graduate Program Director, School and Applied Child Psychology, Department of Education and Counseling Psychology, McGill University. Interesting time, Stephen. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Uh, election, of course, I guess. Have we gotten over that yet? Halloween in between. At least there was a nice sugar buds, uh, buzz afterwards. Uh, the Prime Minister is having or starting to have one-on-one meetings with par- party leaders. They're organizing this now and hoping to get these underway by next week. Uh, trying to find some common ground, I guess, within a minority government and what everybody's priorities, I guess, are moving forward. To find out more about those meetings, what the objective is, let's bring in Peter Griff, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Peter, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So should this have happened by now? Is it a little late? Does it matter? I mean, some are saying that all the leaders have been pretty quiet up until now. Yeah, I mean, I think they need a couple of weeks to lick their wounds and uh, figure out what happened. Uh, I don't think this is particularly uh, out of time, uh, but it's a pretty typical process, particularly in a minority parliament, for the prime minister to meet with the other leaders and uh, get a sense of uh, how they see the parliamentary session going. On election night, it seemed that uh, everyone was a winner. Uh, so what do you think these parties individually, before we get to the meetings with the Prime Minister, what have these parties individually been doing for the last week or two? Well, I mean, I guess we've seen most with the uh, Conservative Party. They've been starting to tear themselves up on the inside a bit in yeah. terms of people beginning to posture for potential leadership. Uh, and on the other hand, Andrew Scheer meeting with the defeated candidates and other stalwarts in the party to try and assess to what extent he is safe in his job. Uh, so, I mean, that's uh, the Conservatives, uh, you know, the Liberals, uh, the Prime Minister has been thinking about his cabinet, I'm sure. Who who does he want to have sitting in there? Not too many of the uh, current ministers lost or retired. So there's a lot of people who got elected, no doubt, thinking that they had a, a straight uh, straight route to cabinet, but he you know, has to figure out who's going to be in them, in those posts. And, uh, yeah, Elizabeth May and the Greens, uh, Elizabeth May started uh, angling for the Speaker's chair last week. Uh, which was a bit of an odd move, but uh, I think the Greens are happy to have increased their caucus, but trying to figure out what to do with a leader who I don't think really wants to stay on that much longer as leader after over a decade in the role. And for the NDP, uh, I mean, I think there has been some grumbling inside uh, about a party that lost uh, not quite half its seats, but is, you know, well down, uh, lost some of its popular vote, but seems to have a popular leader. So in terms of figuring out what the way is ahead, I think they spent the last week trying to sort that out. What do the results of this election say to you, Peter? I mean, there was lots of chatter prior to the prior, prior to the election, uh, the beginning of the campaign, especially uh, among uh, in regard to the Greens and, and then eventually the NDP coming on like gangbusters, it would assume. And uh, also on the other extreme, Maxime Bernier's party. And many were concerned that Canada would follow the United States and, and, you know, and many other countries and and, and start sort of following a populist movement and such. Whereas at the end of the day, um, you know, Maxime Bernier didn't get any seats. So that's the alt-right gone or or the far right. Uh, The Green, uh, you know, picked up one, I guess, the, the NDP lost. But neither one of those two parties really drove home what the anticipation was you know, prior to the actual election. And everybody sort of stayed in the middle with the with the conservatives and the liberals again. So at the end of the day, does that not say that where does that not say where Canada is? 
Well, what, in 2004? I mean, it looks so different from the results when uh, Paul Martin was uh, yeah. elected with a minority. Um, well, I mean... Yeah, Those I mean, fringe think... parties didn't seem to get her attention. They got her attention, but they didn't get her vote. No, well, that's true. I mean, uh, I, I guess in some ways uh, it may be that the limits on uh, what people can give to parties, how they can be funded... The amounts of money parties can spend in a campaign and the huge geography of Canada. We're trying to find, you know, candidates who actually could mount campaigns in 338 different ridings uh, probably makes it harder for parties to arrive as a flash in the pan. I mean, even parties that have been around for a long time trying to build themselves up like the Green Party seem to have a hard time uh, finding money and uh, candidates to be able to credibly uh, give the impression that they they were a credible party along the lines of the two big ones and maybe even the NDP. All right, let's talk about these meetings that are being scheduled for next week with all of the party leaders and the prime minister. I'm assuming there'll be individual meetings, not all together. That would be something, wouldn't it? Uh, what is the objective of these meetings? And, and Well, let's start with that. What's the objective of these meetings? What's the prime minister doing here? Uh, I think he's doing two things. On the one hand, I think it's image management. I think Canadians want to see their politicians working together and not squabbling. And so there'll be plenty of squabbling in a minority parliament uh, and grandstanding. So he wants to start with the image of someone who's trying to find some consensus. Um, the other, though, is to figure out uh, you know, what sort of policies might find support in the other parties. Uh, are there things that he could do where he could rely on the support of other parties? And particularly in an instance where it's not clear that he really wants any kind of working relationship with another party on an ongoing basis. Are there specific policies where he could get the Conservatives to buy on and sign on to some? Like, for instance, his you know proposed tax uh, reduction was very similar, at least in its total amount and in some of its dynamics, to what the Conservatives promised on the campaign trail. So could they find agreement on that? And on the other hand, on something like Pharmacare, could he find agreement with the NDP? So I think part of it is to, to figure out are there specific issues which he feels he can move forward by finding the support on one side or the other of the House. Uh, Will, how will the discussion with each leader be different? Well, I mean, I think uh, while you might argue that there may be the most overlap in terms of the platforms on on the big points of the platform with the Conservatives, the fact that the Conservatives have ran so strongly against the Liberals... Mm. Um, but also are the official opposition and are expected in our system of parliament to be going at the government hammer and tongs most of the time. Uh, I suspect that will be a pretty uh, pro forma meeting um, without a lot of kind of deeper discussion. Uh, you know, when it comes to a question of the bloc, again, a party that uh, traditionally has been probably most strongly against the liberals uh, in terms of its positioning, there nevertheless may be some specific issues around uh, the environment, uh, carbon pricing. Uh, where there may be some small spaces of uh, of agreement. But again, probably not a meeting that will go terribly well. Um, I think it's with the NDP that will be perhaps the most interesting. I mean, at the moment, I don't think Trudeau really needs anything from the NDP. Uh, the NDP is uh, in such a bad financial shape that they probably aren't in a position to run an election for a couple of years. So in many ways, I think Trudeau can rely on the NDP to prop up his government, re- regardless of what he does for the first two years. And in fact, could maybe do some things to really wear the uh, wear the edge off uh, Mr. Singh's image in terms of making him agree to things that are really that close to what uh, NDP members would likely expect or want from their leader to to put forward. But it probably is a party where there's the most space for finding some kind of form of 
agreement. We saw Mr. Singh last week saying uh, a couple of ideas around pharmacare mm-hmm. and of not appealing uh, the uh, the decision around uh, funding of Indigenous children's services um, as his kind of starting conditions. So, you know, there's there's more desire on the part of Mr. Singh to negotiate and find some kind of form of agreement. But again, for Trudeau, I think at this stage, it's probably more figuring out what he might do in the later later stages of his mandate, where he might get some NDP buy-in, whereas in the early stages, I suspect he'll really try to, to run them into the ground based on their uh, financial weakness. Hmm. Uh, will will uh, leaders walk in with a grocery list, for example, uh, as you mentioned, with Singh and, and Pharmacare? How hard does he want to ram this through? Is he willing to, at some point... Um, force the government to try to, to to deliver something or trigger trigger an election. Yeah, I mean it's it's that's a hard call. I mean I presume uh, there's an interest in making something like that happen, at least in a manner in which he could then go and say, look, this is what the NDP got out of this minority government situation. So electing new Democrats matters. It makes a difference. Um, so I mean I presume there's that a desire. On the other hand. You know, and bringing it up and announcing it as, you know, a point of potential achievement, if it doesn't happen, it becomes a way that you can run against the Liberals in the next uh, in the next election. So, I mean, I think uh, for Mr. Singh, it's probably a moment of really trying to find some kind of common ground. Uh, under the Stephen uh, Harper prime ministerships, uh, Jack Layton, as the NDP leader, was trying hard always to find some kind of aspect of common ground, or even if it wasn't necessarily in the Conservatives' uh, uh, mandate to make some kind of case about why Stephen Harper would want to do something, you know, in terms of the legacy it would leave them as a prime minister who, for instance, did an apology for the uh, residential schools and, and so forth. So uh, I think probably the NDP's tradition is to try and find some grounds of making themselves look useful. Uh, the Greens might have a similar interest in doing that to show that electing Greens makes a difference. Uh, for both the blocks and the, uh, the block and the conservatives, so really their point in being in Ottawa is to show why the government is not a good one and needs to be changed, either to create a separate Quebec state or to, you know, elect a conservative government. And so their interest in cooperating at this stage would be much less. Uh, how much of a spoiler will the bloc play in this? Where will they lean with the government? Will will where will they uh, uh, move away? How how much power will they wield? Uh, at the moment, I don't think they'll wield a great deal. Uh, I mean, I think they do wield some power indirectly for the Liberals in the sense that it's hard to imagine a bloc uh, caucus propping up a conservative alternative to, to the Liberals. Uh, you know, on issues like pipelines and carbon pricing, uh, they're worlds apart. Uh, you know, and those are really significant issues to the current Conservative Party. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, I think they're really there to oppose, to say that Quebec does it better, to say they're standing up for the National Assembly. Um, so to the extent that the Liberals probably don't need their vote in many uh, uh, many moments, uh, I don't think they will they'll play that big a role. Where they may begin to play a bigger role is when the NDP is able to raise enough money to be on an election footing. And I think it's at that point that the Liberals may have to look to them a bit more. Because as it stands, to, to beat the Liberals, you need the Conservatives plus the Bloc plus the NDP uh, those are quite different uh, parties, different, quite different views. So to find a moment when they'd all be aligned and wanting an election, 
we're unlikely to see that, I would think, for two to three years. Actually, we're just getting now, uh, Peter, breaking news. Elizabeth May stepping down as Green Party leader. She is speaking right now on this. I guess no surprises there. I remember chatting with her during the election campaign, and we were even chatting then because obviously the uh, uh, about her uh, stepping down, uh, because the last election there was lots of chatter around that. But then with the whole climate change discussion moving, uh, discussion moving into high gear, uh, it seemed her popularity uh, uh, excelled again. Are you surprised that that she is stepping down at this point? Not really. I mean, I, I think that's one of the most thankless tasks in Canadian politics yeah. is to uh, to try and make a party live in our electoral system when you're the fourth or fifth party uh, on the list uh, uh, to try and find 338 candidates to try and raise the money necessary to run some kind of semblance of a campaign. I mean, this last campaign she ran was a shambles and uh, maybe it reflects a bit on her, but I think it reflects much more on the gargantuan task of trying to to make a party like that viable in our electoral system, especially on the scale. I mean, in a province like New Brunswick and PEI, we've seen some capacity to do that, but you're talking about much smaller populations, so much less money to raise, uh, many fewer candidates to find. How does this party take it to the next level? How does this party get to where, say, for example, the NDP is? Uh, well, I think there's two possibilities. One is that the NDP collapses, and then you you see, I mean, in a situation where, say, the NDP had only elected 10 members, wouldn't have had party status, there might have been a push to say, could you put those 10 together with the three Greens, and you'd have something that would get party status, and that might be the, the start of a, of, a, of a party that could marry a stronger Green view with the organization of the NDP. I think that would be one way forward. The other, I think, is to change electoral rules, so either changing the voting system so that you know, 7% or 5% of the vote means, uh, you know, 5 to 7% of the seats, and you'd have a, a stronger voice in Parliament. Uh, or even changing the electoral financing, the removing of the per-vote subsidy that went to the parties, uh, I think has really hamstrung a party like the Green Party in its capacity. You know, there's, there's many Canadians who want to vote for it, but their capacity to actually have the money to offer a compelling platform to those people is really limited. Uh, whereas, you know, with the money they were able to get through party financing in uh, the 2004 to 2011 period when that was in place enabled them to, to grow a bit more of an infrastructure and an organization to put forward more credible candidates and platforms. How do they move beyond a one-issue party? Will they ever get to that point, or will they just be the party of our green consciousness? Um well, I guess the answer to that is to your previous question, right? If they actually do find uh, another gear, then I think Canadians will be looking at them more seriously. At the moment, you know, their their vote, I think, is a mixture of people who are just anti-politics and see them as an alternative to the other parties that they hate, uh, coupled with people who are voting for it really on the idea that it is a Green Party. And I think they've really hit their ceiling with that. So if they, you know, if they want to go further... Uh, you know, I think they probably go further when they begin electing more people and people begin to say, well, what do you what do you do for these things? And so I think we should look to places like PEI and New Brunswick, where you see a stronger caucus developing in those provinces for the Green Party and, and see how do they respond in terms of trying to have a more established and elaborated uh, policy platform around things like you know, economic growth, uh, social policy and so forth. Uh, any idea who will replace her, or uh, or is there anyone waiting in the wings? 
Uh, well, I mean, last spring, uh, Elizabeth May tried to foist a job on Jody Wilson-Raybould, who didn't yeah. seem to want it. Uh, the leader of the Quebec Green Party, who came out a few times to really trip up with May in the last uh, campaign, has announced he wants to run. I suspect uh, having done so, uh, you know, having tripped up the Green campaign during the election, he's unlikely uh, to be well-loved in that party. But, uh, you know, it's such a small party. It has such a fluid membership that a lot of it probably depends on who decides to run. In the short term, I suspect Paul Manley, as the second longest serving MP, is likely to step forward and perhaps make a case for being the leader. But uh, you could have some kind of a celebrity who's successful at signing up people, uh, you know, come forward and, and take on that job. Because, again, I would say it's pretty wide open given the fluidity of the membership. Is this a turning point, a turning point for this party? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Elizabeth May took a party that had no parliamentary representation and through, you know, three elections, got it up to three, which doesn't seem like a lot, but is, you know, nevertheless, mm-hmm. it's taken much more seriously as a party, given its capacity to elect people and not just its leader. And so, uh, you know, the question is, how do you find a leader who's able to sustain that? Elizabeth May had particular skills and, and, and uh, assets in terms of her knowledge of political somebodies and in the media and, and so forth. Someone like Paul Manley, for instance, to take it on would be starting uh, having to, to reconvince Canadians that they knew who he was and uh, uh, have to find a way of having a narrative that got picked up by the, by the news uh, and by you know, Canadian public opinion leaders. So, yeah, I think it's a big challenge for them to find uh, someone who can take the Green Party from the level it's achieved and to take it to a place where it might actually make some claim to party status. Uh, what about uh, Mike Schreiner out of Guelph? That's, yeah, an interesting opportunity. I think in Ontario, people might ask, uh, his job is really to do the Elizabeth May job in Ontario and go from being able to elect a leader to beginning to have a small deputation. Um, so people might feel it would be a bit soon. Uh, you know, Mike Schreiner certainly would appeal to uh, certain uh, sectors of the Green Party, particularly the idea that you can have uh, sort of modern economic uh, strategies that are nevertheless green. So that, that would be a possibility. I don't know what his French is like. I, I don't know what his capacity is in terms of networks with green leaders and green activists in other provinces. But certainly as someone who managed to get elected as a leader of the Green Party, that would play in his favor. Peter Graff has been with us, professor of political science at McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? Well, of course you have. And I remember going as a kid and and doing the tour way back when. Of course, yes, I've been there since then many times. Um, and, and showing this to my kids and, and saying to my parents, what is that out there on the river? What, what's going on out there? And it was a barge. And it's been there forever since, I think, 1918. And it was interesting, uh, you know, when you're driving along the river, you could see the barge just sitting there and stuck. And, you know, you, you hear the folklore, you hear the stories behind it and what has happened and so on and so forth. And it's been there forever. It hasn't moved. Nothing new. And then all of a sudden we realize and find out on uh, in around Halloween during those big windstorms that the barge actually broke loose. And traveled, it's, they're saying, I guess, th- between 30, 50 meters farther down the river from where it was, closer to the edge of the falls. 
So to talk more about all of this, uh, joining us is Jim Hill. And Jim Hill is the Senior Manager in Niagara Parks and is with us now. Jim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. So are you surprised how much chatter this is uh, generating? Well, it, it has taken on uh, a life of its own. And we've talked to many people uh, uh, around the world now about uh, about the scow. That's, uh, that what's left of it is still out on the river. How much of it is, like, what you know, what is the condition of this? Well, last year we took some uh, aerial footage of what was left of the scow. And from the Canadian side, we had a pretty good view. It still looked like a boat. Uh, but from the air, uh, and you can even go on Google Maps uh, and see what was left. Basically, everything facing the American shore and both ends of the scow were pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was almost like the one side of the hull facing Canada was upright and intact, but everything else had uh, been washed away because that's where the, the current was striking it on the other side. Basically. Right. So is was it weather that moved it or just the fact that it's decaying so badly and just shifting? Yeah, it's probably a bit of both, that after 101 years of being, being stuck there, and then yeah. we had all of that rain and wind, uh, the lake levels are high anyway, which means there's always going to be a more water uh, heading down the Niagara River and over the falls. And that's what finally kind of looks like it flipped over and got swung around hmm. uh, by, the, uh, by the current. When did officials realize it had moved? Well, I think we can credit uh, local people who just, it's part of their routine to go for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> who live here. And all of a sudden so you think, what's different here? What looks different? I'm not yeah. sure. And I think some people quickly realized that after many, many years of, of seeing the scout on their daily uh, walk along the river, hmm. this had radically changed. And they're probably the first people who uh, who informed us about it. And there was a concern initially that is this going to go over? Our hmm. parks police were involved. Uh, uh, but in general, we think, uh, we, we, we think we're good because, again, we don't think it can float. Right. It stopped being a boat a long time ago, hmm. and, uh, and it was disappearing in chunks anyway. So this was a dramatic shift uh, after 101 years, but uh, it hasn't moved much since. Now, did anybody see it move or know what time of the day or night this actually happened? Well, it's, that part of the river is in darkness, and uh, I, that's a good question, but I don't, I don't think we know, except when the sun came up, uh, people, uh, people were starting to call and say, "Hey, the uh, the scow is very different because not only is it moved, but it's flipped, so it yeah. does not look recognizable anymore as that uh, that neat boat that was stuck in the rapids." So, give us the history. Tell us what happened way back when. Sure, way back in August 6, nineteen eighteen, this uh, sand barge, the scow, was being towed by a tugboat. And it was actually clearing out a fill near one of the hydro canals on the New York side. And it was an American tugboat, and there was even American crewmen on the scow. And then the cable snapped, and the scow got caught up in the current. And a couple of other tugboats nearby tried to get in, get in its way to right. stop it, but there was a danger these guys would get swept into the rapids too. So the scow goes down. It grounds out about uh, 600 meters from the brink. And how far How far was that from where it actually broke free? How far was the tug and in, in, in barge initially yeah. before it broke free? 
A, b- a boa broke uh, away was about a kilometer and a half. Wow, so it went for quite a distance. Yeah, there's a little bit about how long this thing it didn't have a motor. Right. Uh, it was completely dependent on getting pulled around. How long it would have taken, but it would have a matter of minutes uh, for it to kind of get caught up in the faster current and then swept to where it eventually uh, grounded out. And two men on board when this happened. Yeah, two fellows from Buffalo, New York, uh, James Harris and uh, Gustav Lofberg, um, were uh, were on board. These four guys were stuck uh, out there, and that's when uh, everybody showed up to figure out how are we going to get these guys off this boat. And clearly, it was going to have to happen from the Canadian side because they were stuck about 200 meters from the Canadian shore. Uh, conveniently, there was a massive relatively new power plant there and they tried firing a rescue line when the fire department and the police came out they tried to fire a rescue line but it wasn't powerful enough so today in youngstown new york there's a u.s coast guard station and somebody called them knew they had a better cannon and these guys the story goes they had boats but they didn't have a truck so they stole a u.s army truck raced over to the canadian side got the cannon on top of the power station and first shot fired a line out to uh, to Harris and Lofberg. Wow. They secured the line at their end. And at that point, they were going to send out this thing called a breeches boy. It's like a life preserver with a seat in it and some ropes and a pulley. So you could pull this with a man in it from mm. ship to ship or ship to shore. And they were putting it out, but the lines got tangled. And this brings one of the more famous guys locally into the story. His name was uh, William Hill Sr., and most people knew him as Red Hill. And Red had already been, um, well, accredited and given medals for previous uh, life-saving work hmm. he'd done along the Niagara River. Hmm. He goes out there, untangles the lines, and communicates with these guys, because nobody can hear over the roar of the water. Yeah. And, but as he comes back up to the roof of the power plant, the lines tangle again, and the sun goes down. So these guys are stuck out there overnight. And you kind of have to remember that at the time, people thought at any moment, maybe this thing would get swept to go over. So in the morning, there's like 100 guys on the roof of this power plant, police officers, firefighters, U.S. Coast Guard, even uh, soldiers guarding the power plant because the war was still on. Mm. And Red Hill volunteers again. This guy has just come back from the trenches of World War One. He was wounded. Or at least he was gassed over there. He goes out again and successfully untangles the lines, and they rescue uh, both Harris and Lofberg. So I think at that time there wasn't a lot of good news for people to celebrate. And this was such a nice hmm. good news story. These guys survived. Uh, and they'd be reunited with their, with their families. But the poor old scow, well, it stayed. And the and so when you're looking at something like this and the history of the falls and the tourists that it brings, how big a story is this when this thing moves? Uh, because it hasn't moved in so long, I, I think that's the deal. That that certain things that aren't expected when they do suddenly happen, they become maybe newsworthy. And I think a few people who've grown up with this story. Mm. Grandparents told them. Their parents told them. They want to come down and see for themselves exactly what happened to uh, 
to this gal because it isn't just about this neat old boat that was stuck there. It was this dramatic story that ended happily for the two guys who were stuck on the scow. Wow. And, you know, I mean, another story for the falls. There we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, any relation to Red Hill, you? No, I am no direct relation to no. that, that part of the Hill family. But they're all very nice folks. And uh, for the 100th anniversary, just last year, we had the descendants of Red Hill, mm-hmm. and we had the descendants of the guy stuck on the boat, wow. and the descendants of other rescuers who, who helped out there. The current commander of the U.S. Coast Guard Station. So it was kind of a neat uh, collection of people who had a, a family or personal or professional connection to, uh, to the river and to the, uh, and to the rescue. Uh, what a great story. Does Now, what about the barge now? Is there any fear that it, like, because obviously they opened it up to, you know, to sink it and, and wedge it in the rocks there. Is there any, uh, is there any fear that it will keep going and go over? Well, it, it's now sort of a twisted pile of metal. It's not yeah. really recognizable as ever having been a boat at some yeah. point. It's just scrap metal uh, now. That's right. I think our best guess is, it's kind of coming apart, uh, as it has for decades. We just didn't really notice it from our side because it, it was almost like a Hollywood facade. Yeah. We still had this nice view of the side of it, but everything else is gone. And it was really just a matter of time for something to give it a push uh, to knock it over. And that's, that's what happened on, on Halloween night. Now, does this pose... So we don't think it, it can go over. Does that, you know, if it does break apart and pieces of it do go over, does that pose any danger to anyone below? Any of the, the Maid of the Mist, any of that stuff that goes on down there? Yeah, we don't, we don't think that would happen. If, even if chunks make it that far, uh, the power of the water uh, and the immediate drop of big chunks of metal coming down, if it did happen... Yeah. The pool below the Whirlpool Falls is deeper than the waterfall is high. Really? Uh, the, waterfall is, the waterfall is about 16 stories high. If you sank that 16-story building into the water below, you wouldn't be able to see the top of it. It goes down wow. almost a, about 100 I didn't know feet. that. So any, any chunks that have gone over before uh, or that might go over in the future mm. – um, uh, are probably going to end up at the bottom of that. But, but because this is pretty, the reason it survived so long, it was a very overbuilt as boats go. Right. Because of the heavy work that it did. Right. And I think what you're going to find, just past where it's stuck, even today, the water and the river widen out. And, there's, and, and again, if you look in Google Maps, you can see this big slab of rock there. Right. So what, I, what we think is going to happen is, there will be sort of a, a debris field right. in the rapids of chunks of it through that part of the river. There just isn't enough water right. to float uh, big, heavy chunks of, of metal to the brink. Jim Hill has been with us, Senior Manager of Niagara Parts. Jim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Nice talking with you. Take care. Uh, let's bring in Sherman, Jav- uh, Sherman Zavitz, historian and with the city of Niagara and with us now. Uh, Sherman, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Sherman, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hello, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Your thoughts on the interest that this story has generated? Uh, well, it's... The uh, folklore continues. About me? The folklore continues. Oh, the folklore, yes. Well, you could certainly say that. It's a great human interest story, of course, from back in 1918. 
uh, one of many dramatic incidents, I guess you might say, too, that have taken place in this area and along the river over a great many years. And, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting situation. And uh, many people who, are, of course, have watched this scow over the years, have observed it, uh, are now seeing it look a great, great deal different than uh, it, it was. Uh, we were just talking about how all of a sudden overnight it had changed, and yes. it must have been interesting for people walking by to think, is something different here? Wasn't uh, that over there well, before? It's obvious. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's been swung around, and uh, it has a sort of a crumpled look now. Not nearly the size hmm. that, it, uh, that it was. Talk about, uh, and we've heard the story and, and the rescue and such and, and how this all happened. After it was over, talk about the celebrity with these gentlemen, whether it was the two that were rescued or, or uh, the person who, uh, Mr. Hill, who was responsible for uh, the daring rescue and untangling lines and stuff. Yeah. Were they heroes afterwards? Uh, yeah, well, especially uh, Mr. Hill. Uh, yeah, he, he certainly um, was considered a hero, had been already, actually, from other rescue yep. uh, situations that he'd been involved with um, earlier on. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he was certainly uh, considered a hero. The two men involved, um, Gustav Luftberg and James Harris, uh, I don't know that they were considered quite so much as heroes, uh, remarkable survivors. <laughs> Um, yeah. They all sort of, both of them sort of downplayed it. In fact, uh, the day after the rescue, uh, they were back on the job. Oh, so uh, they didn't uh, treat it all that seriously, I guess, after the rescue. They went back to work and carried on as though not much had happened. You can imagine, at least when we're hearing this story now, what it must have been like when all of a sudden that thing breaks away from the tug and then it starts going the yeah. kilometer or so down the river and you know what's at the other end. Uh, that's right. And then they at least had the wherewithal to open up the hatches and they, fill it with yeah. water and, and sink yeah. the thing. But what would it have been, been like for them to spend the night on that thing. Um, terrible, I'm sure. Yeah. Because they wouldn't have known if it was going over or not. Yeah, they had no idea while they were stuck there at the moment. No one knew, including them, of course, how long it would stay there. Yeah. Uh, it's a very powerful current, as, as uh, you know, and uh, they felt that at any moment that current could dislodge the scow from its rocky perch and send it on downriver and, of course, over the Horseshoe Falls, and that would be the end of it. So it was a great concern, I'm sure. Uh, are you surprised that it stayed where it was for so long? Yeah, I am. Um, not only because of that uh, very treacherous, strong current of water, but in the early spring every year, there's a great deal of ice that comes down yeah. the Niagara River yeah. from Lake Erie. Uh, strong, powerful ice flows. And I've often wondered why perhaps that ice uh, jammed up against the uh, scow didn't uh, move it over the years. Uh, but uh, that seemed to have very little effect on the scow. Uh, any sort of history or, or, or any stories like this ever happening before? I mean, obviously, we've heard stories of, of people going over and this, that, and the other, but is there, has there been any sort of industrial accident like this uh, before? Not really, no. There have been other rescues, as you see, yeah. of various sorts, but uh, nothing like this. Uh, this was a real challenge at the time. Today, of course, it wouldn't be a challenge. You'd have a heli rescue helicopter hovering over that scow within minutes of the accident. And uh, a line lowered, and they would be plucked one yeah. by one from that scow, uh, and uh, quite quickly it'd all be over. But, of course, in 1918, that kind of thing wasn't possible. Obviously, tremendous amount of history with Niagara Falls, and, oh, and, yes, and, and, tourists, come, and yeah. tourists come over the years. How much does this play into that? Uh, does everybody that come to the Niagara Falls remember that barge? Does everybody Has everybody seen that? Would they recognize uh, that? Most would certainly see it, 
as they drove by or walked yeah. by. Um, Does it generate are, much interest, though? Yeah, well, there are some uh, storyboards, as we call them, opposite the uh, scow on the on the shore uh, that tell the story. So if they're up in that area, uh, notice those storyboards. They can certainly read the whole uh, story, rescue, and so on in, in detail. Um, if not, well, they might get it from a, a book, say, if they buy a souvenir book, that kind of thing. Um, but otherwise, they may just uh, just wonder what's it all about. Are you concerned now, uh, Sherman, that you may have to move those plaques? <laughs> <laughs> well, if it, if it does eventually go over within the next few years, you might might have to update them a bit. Yes, yes. But uh, I think the, the story will live on, even though the skull may not. So uh, I think the storyboard would stay with an update. Mm. Sherman Zavitz has been with us, historian, city of Niagara Falls. Sherman, fascinating story. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, You're welcome, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.